Welcome back to The Road to Seven with Sheila Cummins. I am your host, Sheila Cummins, and today I have the honor of interviewing Natalie Butterfield, who is the co-founder of Fluff. If you are a product seller and you have a company that wants to sell on Amazon and sell wholesale and is really looking to skyrocket your sales past seven figures, then this is a conversation that you don't want to miss. Natalie Butterfield is the co-founder of Fluff creator of organic cotton, machine washable, sustainable, feel-good bags. Natalie studied philosophy at McGill University and then law at U of T. Prior to starting Fluff, Natalie worked as a lawyer. And after the birth of her first daughter, Natalie and co-founder Tara Kushner founded Fluff back in 2005. Originally as a destination pillow boutique in downtown Toronto, hence the name Fluff. While selling pillows exclusively, they also carved out a mission to make them sustainably, which led them down the path of designing and printing their own fabrics and then creating reusable bags and lunch bags, and their current business was born. Natalie has grown Fluff to be a multi-seven-figure company and is tracking incredible numbers, and her story is a powerful one. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Welcome to The Road to Seven. I'm your host, Sheila Cummins. I am an entrepreneur, a mentor, an investor, a wife, and mom to three beautiful children. Women entrepreneurs are up-leveling and changing the rules for business strategy, leadership, success, money, and impacting the world every single day. The Road to Seven is the diary of business strategy for women entrepreneurs. We meet you where you're at in your business and champion you along the road to your vision. And I am honored you chose to join us today. Ready to go? Buckle up. It's time to hit the road. My guest today has done what many women entrepreneurs have been trying to do, and that's to hit that seven-figure mark with their business. Our guest today, Natalie, she's not just selling. She's selling lunch bags, seven figures worth of lunch bags every single year. And the journey to how she got there has so many takeaways, so many learnings, and so many valuable pieces that we all can be thinking about and learning from and implementing in our business, whether you sell a product or not. So first off, Natalie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled that you're here. I've been dying to have this conversation for a while now. And you've started Fluff. Fluff Fluff.ca is the name of the website. You sell absolutely gorgeous bags and lunch bags. I'm going to let you talk about the company in a minute. But here's the thing that's so interesting. You have a background as a lawyer. How did you go from practicing law to running Fluff? Yeah, I practiced law for not too many years, actually, but four or five years, I guess. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I grew up in a family of lots of entrepreneurs. So my grandfather had several businesses. My parents had a business together and my mom also had another business, a design business when I was younger. And so I think that I always had a sense that I was going to run my own business. I I liked, I guess you could say I liked what I saw. My parents had a really nice balance of both. I don't know. Their work was both all-consuming and yet there was a freedom to how they worked. And that looked good to me. I mean, I guess we all sort of have role models and we learn things by, yeah, what we see, what's presented to us. So 
I guess there was that, that I had always sort of had a sense that I would like to run my own business. And then when I had my first daughter in 2004, I had some sort of time and space and I was on that leave and I started thinking about different life paths, I guess you could say. And I had tried at different times, actually, I had tried different creative ideas out. You know, in university, I had made necklaces with stones that I found on the beach and a bunch of different things. But anyway, the time was uh, right to start something new. And I had a girlfriend that I had been talking to for years, actually, bouncing different ideas off each other. And we suddenly said, yeah, this is the time. Let's do it. And we didn't start out doing what we do now. We started out with a very niche idea of creating exclusively pillows, basically. Yeah. Throw pillows. Yeah. And so people thought we were a little crazy at the time, and maybe <laughs> we were. It was a very, you know, it was a very product, narrow product category to take on. But we believed in it. And we, we sort of, what we saw, and the reason that we decided to exclusively pillows was what we saw was stores everywhere with a selection of pillows. But, and so it seemed to us that, you know, everybody was selling pillows, but nobody was doing it exclusively. So we saw an opportunity to try something. And I, I mean, I guess as you can see in the way that our business is today, it is still, I don't want to call it a one product business. We have certainly more than one product, but we do really focus on lunch bags. And I do think there's something to be said for doing one thing and, and picking something and doing it really well. Well, the riches in the niches, isn't that the expression? <laughs> yeah, totally. So, you know, here you are going from a law, a law career, you know, working in downtown Toronto, probably putting in the large hours to starting a retail store because you jumped in with both feet. E-commerce wasn't readily available in 2004 as it is now. So you started with a brick and mortar retail store, designing it, opening it, bringing in products. How did you initially start to get some traction with when was it called fluff as well? Well, yeah. And actually, in a way, fluff made a lot more sense when we were doing pillows, right? Fluff. So that was actually the reason for the name. Now it's a bit of a misnomer, but yeah. And I should name my business partner, Tara Kushner and I, we both had my, the co-founder, my co-founder. We both had this real desire to have a retail store. So I think, and I, I, from what I understand, I think that's not, or maybe it is, but. It was just a bit of a fantasy that we had at the time. And, and even though actually people were giving us advice to not necessarily do it as a retail brand, but to do more of a wholesale model because of what we were wanting to design. But for us, it was really this dream that we wanted to have a retail store. So yeah, so we, we sort of had to follow that dream. We just had to, to do that. We initially knew that in order to get people to find us, because it was such a niche concept that we had to start sort of with some initial strong PR. Mm -hmm. So before we even launched, we'd hired a PR firm to really help us get the word out because we felt that there was going to be an audience for what we were offering. But we, we knew that, yeah, people were going to need to know we were there and what we were offering. So I think that was how we really, uh, and actually in the early days, we did get quite a bit of press because it was a different concept and no one else was, you know, had a boutique that was just pillows. Right. So that press really helped us early on. And I don't think that we could have, with what we were trying to do back then, I don't, I, I don't think that trying to do it organically would have gotten us off the ground. <laughs> well, I love that you just went in and were like, listen, we need to get some big eyeballs on this to make this fly. So you went and got a PR person and, you know, paid someone who knew what they were doing. That to me is such a worthwhile investment. I actually would like to just ask you a different question here, totally off the growth path. But here, you know, I wanted, you said something. People probably thought that I was crazy. 
starting this. And I totally relate. I mean, I remember the day I said, okay, that's it. I'm packing in my full-time teaching job at one of Toronto's most prestigious schools, you know, full pension, full health plan, you know, beautiful salary, summers off to go and start my own thing. And I remember people were just looking at me like, uh, lady, like, are you, do you, did you not have enough sleep? Have you gone, you know, is this your midlife crisis? And yeah, I found it really challenging to deal with that. How did you just keep going anyway when people were questioning your choices? Oh, definitely. And actually that's, uh, it, it's funny. You just really threw me back to that. Cause I think it was for, for me, it was the double win. Yeah. Of people being like, really, you're leaving law. That's nice. <laughs> like a strange choice. And then also what I was leaving to go do. So, you know, it wasn't like I was leaving law and taking on, you know, sort of something serious. Starting your own legal uh, practice. Yeah. Right. You know, I was leaving law and I was like, yeah, I'm going to make pillows. So yes, no. And I would say people weren't even really quiet about it. I remember having dinner with a, a very old friend and she, she really was like, I think you're crazy. That's, yeah. you know, kind of weird what you're doing. But I, you know, you hear this story all the time, right? Everybody gets told what they're doing is a bit wacky. And I think you do have to, there's just a lot of naysayers and, and you do. And even if people aren't naysayers, they, they might give you just a funny look or, you know, oh, are you able to eke out a living doing that? That sort of thing. And, you know, I think you just have to, you have to believe in what you're doing and you have to, I guess, yeah, be prepared to stick by it. Well, and I love that you just were like, you know what? Creativity is a thing. I thrive under creativity. I, I have a huge creative arm to, to who I am as a person. And I'm going to go and and do this. And, you know, I remember having similar thoughts of, well, I just, I don't want to be in a classroom and I still want to be able to make money. And it doesn't matter how much better I get as a classroom teacher. I'm never going to make enough money to put my own kid in the private school where I was teaching. And that to me wasn't okay. And so the driving force for me when I got started was more than just a passion. I wasn't actually even clear what I was going to do. I just knew that I had to figure out how to make a certain amount of money so I could stay home with the kids. And it sort of evolved from there. And you sort of, you came out of the gate with a clear vision of, I want to have a brick and mortar and I want to sell pillows. There's a gap in the market. Let's fill it. Let's get some PR. What were some of those earliest challenges coming out of the gate? Yeah. And I, I think just following up on what you said, I think that, you know, for a lot of young moms, there is a balance between also trying to figure out, it's like, okay, yeah, for sure we had a vision of what we wanted to do. But part of that was also a desire to have more flexibility and to be able to be at least in those early years to to have some flexibility over the time. Some of the challenges in the early years, I would say we realized pretty early on that actually our concept was probably too niche when it came to it's it's interesting because it, there were a whole bunch of choices that we made. And for whatever reason, we knew right out of the gate that we could have supplemented what was in our store with what a lot of stores were doing. So we could have made it more gifty. We could have brought in some coffee table books. We could have brought in some jewelry. We were going to trade shows. We would have known how to do that. But it just wasn't really our vision. Our vision was that we wanted to create our own brand and our own thing and our own product line. And I think we sort of somehow inherently knew that if we became a gift store, that it was going to be really difficult for us to figure out our own our own line and our own brand. So we really did in some ways, we doubled down on this concept. And so early on, and this was a little unrelated, but I think it it helped to really steer our business almost accidentally. But early on, 
you know, the sustainability movement was just sort of brand new and we knew we wanted to make pillows, but we also really, we just, from the very beginning, we had a dialogue around how do we also have sort of a collection of pillows that feel like they're sustainably made and, you know, have a soy pillow fill and all these different things. So right from the start, we had started to create this collection of, or we wanted to create this collection of pillows that were sustainable. And we did find right away that just the materials and the things that we wanted weren't really readily available, at least not in the form that we wanted them. So we started developing them. And that really became, I suppose, all the things were happening together where we were sort of realizing, you know, we probably need more than pillows. But at the same time, here we were, we were starting to develop our own fabrics and it became an opportunity to sort of continue on this path that we wanted to be on, which was creating our own line of products, ideally a sustainable line of products. And, you know, suddenly we had fabric. And so we thought, okay, we can make bags with our fabric. And and then that really became a stepping stone for where we are today. And our store really only lasted a couple of years. So within two years, we decided to continue to expand our product line and start to sell wholesale. And I guess you could say at that point, we'd sort of lived our retail fantasy. And <laughs> it was, you know, it was a dream we had to live and we were okay to let it go. But you know, even in 2006, Shopify wasn't a thing. You know, how did you go from having a retail store where people could come and see the pillows to then shifting to selling bags and getting wholesale orders when, you know, how did people buy from you? We, okay, so we were, we were fortunate. We had a couple of friends that had figured out how to do wholesale in, in actually in sort of this, a similar space that we were in. So we knew people that were selling a photo album was one, was one friend. And they, they really showed us the rope. So what we ended up doing was we did a bunch of trade shows and that was how we, went from retail to wholesale. And we made a bit of a strange choice, I guess you could say early on. And I think it was just what we were, what the people that we spoke to knew, but we decided to go after the US before Canada. So we started doing trade shows in New York and it was great. I mean, the reason I say it was a bit of a strange choice is because then right from the get-go, we had a whole bunch of additional hurdles to figure out. If you're selling in Canada, you don't have any cross-border issues. You know, you're not, you're not exporting not importing really. And so we decided to go straight to the US, which meant we, we right from the get-go in our wholesale world, we had to figure out how to operate on a level playing field with some of our US competitors and all these different things. So in hindsight, I might've started in Canada, but it's still, we learned pretty quickly how to do all of it. And that was how, you know, it didn't take very long doing a few shows. It took a little bit of time. I would say that the real hurdles that we had early on in terms of doing shows we're not so much the access to stores. We had, we had a, we had a, you know, there were lots of stores and people willing and ready to buy. Uh, we were still figuring out our products. And that was really our, one of our biggest challenges to in the early years where we were just sort of, you know, fumbling around trying to figure out what was working and what wasn't working and what the stores wanted. And, you know, by some trial and error, we got there, but that was the, the piece that took some sorting out. I feel like there's so many moments in that story where you just, you made the decision to go do it and then figured out how to fly the plane as it was flying and built, I guess the expression is built the plane as it's flying, you know, a little bit, right? Like, okay, I know that the U.S. has a larger market share, so let's just start selling to the U.S. Let's get into trade shows. Okay, now we got to figure out how to get our products across the border. Okay, now we got to figure out how did you, how did you keep going through those times? Because it couldn't have been easy. 
No. And there was so much of that. And actually in the beginning too, we didn't even, I mean, to just layer onto that, we didn't even really have our manufacturing all sorted out. We just kind of went for it. And what that really means actually is you have a lot of stressful moments because as you are sorting things out and as you're getting stores and sales, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. There's, there's some wrinkles. So what we did right from the get go to put ourselves, as I sort of mentioned on an equal playing field with our U.S competitors was we decided that we didn't warrant. We knew that it would be a deterrent for the stores to order from us if if there were import duties and brokerage and that kind of thing. So we said, well, yeah, we're shipping from Toronto, but we're going to cover all the cross-border duties and import fees. So it's going to be kind of as if we're shipping from like New York. So that really helped us get the customers. But what that meant was it was more expensive for us, right? So we were already trying to keep our price point as low as possible. And then here we were sort of covering all these duties and fees and it's expensive. It's expensive, especially when you are just learning how to ship and you don't have, you know, giant volumes where you're getting big shipping discounts and all that. So, I mean, just this is the the live and learn. So we did that for maybe a year and then we realized just it's kind of an aha moment. You say, okay, well, maybe if instead of bringing everything into Canada and shipping to our U.S. customers from Toronto, we bring half of it into you know, the US and half of it into Canada. And then we save on all those fees. And what we realized right away was that it was so much cheaper for us to ship directly to the US and have a warehouse there that was doing all of our, you know, warehousing, fulfillment and shipping. So here we have, we suddenly have this team that's doing all this work for us. And it basically costs us less than bringing it into Canada and shipping it across the border. So wow. yeah. And you just found them through word of mouth. Did you meet them at the trade shows? Oh, our first warehouse was a disaster. No. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I just, I have to stop for a second and say, you know, when you look at a company and you see the success of where it is today, I think it's so important that we can look back and be like, oh, hell no, that was an absolute disaster. (laughs) Or that was because that is so important to the journey. Yeah. And it's funny, just, it was really just thinking back on that. And I should say it was total disaster. I mean, because we've now been through, we're probably on our fifth and final, like amazing warehouse. And you know what you realize? It's sort of the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. You, you have an issue with one warehouse and you try something else and, you know, they might be great at one thing and they're not great at something else. But actually finding an amazing warehouse is, wow, it's one of the most important things that we've had to, that we've had to go through because it's, such an important piece of your customer service, right? What you want when a customer places an order, you want them to get it quickly, but most importantly, you want them to get the right item. There's so many different pieces. And if you have a warehouse that, you know, either is shipping two weeks after they get the order or they're just messing orders up and they're shipping the wrong thing. I mean, it's pretty detrimental to your customer experience. Uh, There's so many pieces to that that have to work. So our first warehouse wasn't actually a disaster. It was just really slow. I think that's what we found. And really far for us. It was in Texas. So there was kind of no way for us. We did have an issue where we needed to go visit and it was complicated. And yeah, so then we had a warehouse. So I mean, to answer your question, I won't go through all of our warehouses because that's boring, but (laughs) we find them in in various different ways. So some of them would approach us at trade shows and you have conversations and dialogues that go on. One I found online and that one didn't turn out. I mean, a lot of promises and yeah, word of mouth is always better. So our general advice probably in anything we do now is if you can ask anybody. So if it's a warehouse or whoever it is that you want to hire, you know, can you send us two or three names of people you've worked with? We'd love to just chat with other people you work with. That's really helpful to avoiding mistakes. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think the same sort of trial and error was applied to your factory. You have factories, you've had factory, you currently have a factory in India. You have had them in China and India and China exclusively. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for someone who's wanting to launch a product, you know, how did you find those factories? Was it through other people that were making stuff? Yeah, finding factories a bit like finding your perfect warehouses. And so it's some, I, I, unfortunately, I mean, for us anyway, perhaps not for everybody, but there was some trial and error. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of those trial scenarios, like in terms of some of the, the really big challenges we've had, those have been some of our hardest. Um, because when, because when you have a factory mishap, it's, it can be pretty devastating, right? You can, you can really want to sit down on your kitchen floor and cry. Um, so I think, yeah, with finding factories, a, a bit like the warehouse, we did a bunch of different things. And ultimately, it's interesting because the factory that we now work with exclusively, that was actually a cold call. He reached out to us, but it was a very targeted, specific. I mean, there's a lot of factories that will reach out to you. This one was an incredibly, you know, narrow. He, he was, he did exactly the type of work that we do. It's not to say we don't get lots of emails like that. We do, but there was something about this one that I could tell he was different. And often if, if the factory seems great, I will at the very least start a conversation and see. Yeah. There are some telltale signs where you can just, you know, delete a lot of those emails. But another great way where we have found good factories is if you can't, I mean, obviously, ideally you can source and visit. But there are some really excellent middle people that that this is their work where they can help you. They can help connect you to factories. You know, there's pros and cons to that. They generally can cut through a lot of the factories that may not be great to work with. They generally will also take a piece. So you're not going to get the best manufacturing rates. Yeah, we've also tried to find factories online. Again, disaster. Don't want to do that. But finding finding that that fit is, yeah, I think there's a few sort of pivotal pieces to getting things working well. And that's for sure one of them. But it will for sure. And I think, you know, there's so many moving pieces and it's not, you know, in your backyard. The, you know, we're talking about across the globe or across the border. And I think what's so interesting is the roller coaster is there. And so how have you stuck with it when you were at the bottom of the roller coaster and things weren't going well? How do you keep going when it's not going smoothly? Well, that's such a good question because there really are so many moments where it actually is hard to keep going because you feel demoralized. You know, when something really important that, you know, feels really important to your business and really negative happens and it can, that can be anything from a really detrimental shipping delay to, you know, production problem where, you know, you may have thousands of bags where there's something wrong with them and you can, you can really feel demoralized, obviously, in those moments. And I think that's such a good question. I think the best answer to that is that weirdly, as your business grows, you have so many moments like that. And I think one of the single greatest things I've learned in my business is that honestly, the things that seem so devastating are never as bad as you think. There's always a fix. And or, I mean, I don't want to say never. I suppose there are certain things that could happen that you couldn't recover from. But in my experience, you go for a run the next day, you come up with a solution, <laughs> You get some fresh air, you know, you listen to some music or whatever it is, and you you actually slowly kind of get there and you realize, okay, here's how we can move on from this, or here's a solution to this particular problem. I'm a huge believer in staying in front of a problem. So if you know that something is coming and your customers are going to know about it, you got to get out there in front of it and you need to tell them so that they're not coming to you. And I, it, and weirdly, that gives you so much peace of mind because 
once you put something out there and you explain to whatever it is, it could be one customer, it could be a thousand. If you say to them, oh, you know what, we have this problem and here's what we're going to do to fix it. You'd be amazed at the overwhelmingly positive response you get to that. This sense of, wow, like, thank you so much for dealing with it like this. And that's been a real learning, I guess, moment for me, realizing that really what people want is honesty and transparency. They don't expect perfection. Nobody expects perfection, but they do expect you when you mess up to own it. And so I think it's it's too much to ask of any human or any business to do everything perfectly. But, you know, I think if you know you can recover from different yeah, problems and know that every day is a new day, you kind of you can't get through it. I don't know if that answered your question. Well, it did because you actually gave a couple answers and I think they're so poignant and so important. You know, number one, that whole concept of resourcefulness, there's always a way to figure it out. You just might not see it in the moment. The second thing that I heard you say that I think is also so important to remember is you know, sleep on it. In the moment, it's going to feel devastating, but sleep on it. Go move your body. Go and just allow yourself to process through it because there's always a way to find an answer, right? Actually, there's always a solution. Yeah. And I love that you just said sleep on it because actually for me, and I think everybody's so different in how they handle problems, but the sleep on it advice has been really important for me because I can be very knee jerk and it is really important to take the time and process and say, okay, this isn't great, but let's Let's take a deep breath and figure out how we can handle it. And I think weirdly running any business, I mean, you would know this too, but running any business is really a lot about troubleshooting. It is. Yeah. If there's a lot of troubleshooting. It is. And, and it's, you know, I think the passion sometimes has to outweigh the frustration that comes with the challenges. You know, there was, I was speaking to someone the other day and they're building an app and it's not going smoothly. Like, let's not, but that's normal. <laughs> it's normal for it not. And so I invited this person to, well, just drop it. Go get a job. Like, you don't have to, nobody's forcing you to stick at it. And the answer was like, I'm not leaving. It's like, great. Then let's pull up those socks and let's go figure out what we can do. And I think that that resiliency and that grit, we just, we have to remember and trust that it's not all going to be sunshine and roses. And I see people going and, and looking at the Instagram feed and thinking that's what entrepreneurship is all about. But really entrepreneurship is what's happening behind the scenes when it's not going smoothly and you keep going anyway. And, you know, it's funny because I don't, there's so many great moments too, right? Yeah. And so uh, obviously, because I guess that's the truth. None of us would keep going if if it was just all those negative moments. I mean, part of what keeps you going is the fact that it is all these great moments and you love doing what you do. So the hard moments, yeah, they, they can be pretty bad. But I think it's that deep well of like this love for what you are doing and what you're making. And I guess in in my case, the product you're putting out or the service you're putting out, but it's it's really the love of that and, and the customers and all of that, that it definitely, definitely keeps you going. That's sure. amazing. I'm going to ask you two more questions and then I'm going to let you go. First thing is, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started? So I think what I would change if I were starting all again is that I would not be so hesitant, not be so shy to reach for help. And I reach for help from all kinds of different sources, from from mentors, from other business owners, even from competitors. I, I've been at trade shows where I've had moments, like these amazing moments with competitors where there's just been this like amazing sharing of resources and information. And, you know, one story in particular really sticks out for me, but this guy who just I couldn't get over how generous he was with his information and and support. And also the mentors, like 
Sheila, meeting you. Seriously, the one thing I really missed, and actually I would have said early on when I started this business, was I really missed the mentors that I had in law. I had these beautiful, amazing, smart mentors that you know read everything and gave amazing direction. And when you start your own business, you really are kind of alone in the world and you feel there's nowhere to turn to and no one to help. And you, I don't know, I think that's part of why there's all those low moments I was talking about because you're just fumbling around and trying to figure everything out. And yeah, if I did it all again, I would ask for help. Yeah, right? Like it seems so basic, but it's so hard. And then final question, tell us what's next for Fluff. Yes. So we're, yeah, right now we're just in the midst of developing a whole new line of products. So we've been really focusing on lunch bags for a long time, but we're going to do a lot more in the reusable area. So reusable shopping bags and tote bags, that type of thing. And so, yeah, it's really exciting, actually. I can't wait to see them. I'll be one of your first purchasers. Love it. Yay! Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to share and for being so open about, you know, the reality of what it's like to be running this business. You know, you are an inspiration to me and to many others. Your products are in the hands of children around the world and maybe soon adults now with your new product line, which is so exciting. Thank you for not only sharing, but also for doing what you do. You know, you have really taken a stand for the for the planet, for environmental causes, for creating a sustainable bag that can be reused, rewashed, and is literally made for for kids. <laughs> and it's made for families who need them. So thank you for everything. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to watching your journey some more and supporting you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sheila. It was- oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Road to Seven. If you found value in what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star rating and a written review. You might just get a shout out on an upcoming episode and you never know when I'm going to be mailing some surprise treats to our reviewers. Make sure to subscribe so you automatically get notified when new episodes are released. Are you looking for a way to connect with other entrepreneurs that are facing the same challenges as you? I'd love to connect with you in the Road to 7 Facebook group on Instagram and LinkedIn. Just head to SheilaCummins.com. You will find all the links that you need right there. Together, we'll explore more ways to support your shift into action so that you can grow your business to finally match your vision. I love aligning your vision of success with strategic and intentional actions because that is how we will grow your business to match your vision. I focus on women, all women, because women hold the keys and the power to creating a powerful and positive world through their impact. We'll see you on the next episode.